Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you. I am so excited I get to preach this message today. You'll see why. Uh, we're in an eight-part series studying uh, through the book of Judges, and as I said last week, this is one of the most violent, bloody books in the entire Bible. It's a terrible story, and uh, it really offends our modern sensibilities. I mean, like, if, if stuff like this is in the Bible, like, like showing how ancient religious heroes violently slay their enemies in the name of God, if that's what's going on here, like, what does that say about God? And to answer that question, we have to ask a deeper question, and that is, what is the Bible all about anyway? I mean, why did God give us these 66 books? What is a, a, a violent, bloody book like Judges even doing in the Bible? Now, those are great questions, and I'm glad you asked them. And I'm going to unpack the idea behind those questions. Um, to my thinking, I would say that most people and most Christ followers think that the Bible is a kind of a, uh, a divine behavior manual. It's a book of rules. It's a book of do's and don'ts. And if that's how you read the Bible, then when you read Bible stories, you tend to look for moral examples to follow, right? Like, like uh, be like Moses, be like Joshua, be like Samson, be like David, be like Daniel, and a, and, and a whole lot of uh, children's Sunday school curriculum promotes that kind of thinking. And people who view the Bible that way also try to sanitize the behavior of Bible characters. Even, even if they do horrible things, somehow we have to try to make them into uh, heroes. And, and, and that's very, very common with the book of Judges. Uh, Samson is a great example of, of this. Again, if you look at children's Sunday school material and children's Bible stories and Bible story books, they all kind of portray Samson as a, as a Captain America kind of guy who was given incredible uh, strength in order to conquer the enemies of God. But have you read the Bible? I mean, have you read the Samson story? I mean, Samson was spoiled, rebellious, self-indulgent, immoral, violent, and he's a bloody man. I mean, anybody want their kids to grow up and be like Samson? I don't think so. He's the worst of all the judges. The best thing he did was die. Now, so you see, to read the Bible as a divine behavioral manual, looking for more examples uh, to follow, completely misses what the author is trying to communicate through these disturbing stories that you find in the book of Judges. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who, gives, who talks a couple times in different places to tell us why God gave us the Jewish scriptures, uh, uh, what we call our Old Testament, but one of the reasons that Paul gives, we find in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, he says, now, these things, talking about Old Testament stories, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. He says, these things took place, and God included them in divine scripture, as examples for us. Yes, examples, but not examples to follow, not as moral examples, but as warnings that we might not desire evil as the, they did, and that we might guard against falling into the idolatries that they too often embraced. Judges is definitely not telling us about Ehud and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson so we can aspire to be like them. 
God forbid. In fact, no one in the book of Judges is being held up as a moral example to follow. So if that's true, then what is God trying to teach us in Judges? What's he trying to teach us about us? And what's he trying to teach us about him? That's what we're trying to look at. And we got to wrap our minds around this because there's a powerful message in the tragic stories in the book of Judges, a powerful message that intersects our lives today. Now, last week we looked at chapter one and the first part of chapter two, and this passage paints a picture of how the people of Israel failed to occupy the land that God promised Abraham and his descendants. They got in, but they didn't, they didn't occupy all of the land. There were Canaanites still in the land. And the reason that was so is because they did not trust God to keep his promises to give them the land. And rather than to drive out the evil, immoral, child-sacrificing Canaanites like God told them to do, they compromised. Uh, some of their enemies had iron chariots and foot soldiers going up against iron chariots. Well, that's pretty scary. And in their thinking, that's just not a winnable war. And on top of that, in the battles they did win, uh, why drive out the enemy if you can force them to work for you, force them to do your work for you? That's just good economic sense, right? So chapter one tells us the story of Israel's failure to take the land from the perspective from a human perspective, from the perspective of an Israelite living in the land at that time, from ground level, kind of like, yeah, we just weren't able to take the land. You know, they had much better military equipment than we did. And uh, yeah, it's true. As a result, you know, we have uh, Canaanites living next door. But, you know, we're just tired of war. You know, it just goes on and on. And we're so tired of it. We figured it's better to just, you know, live and let live. That's the story from ground level from a human perspective, but when we come to chapter two, it's like another introduction. There's two introductions to this book. And the introduction in chapter two gives us the story from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective. Now, this is an eight-part series rather than an 18-part series, so there's no way I can read all the verses in chapter two, verse six, to chapter three, verse six, and then be able to have time to comment on them all. So today, we are going to cover this section, 2.6 to 3.6, and here's what I'm going to do. In a few minutes, I'm going to put up on the screen a graphic, and this is a graphic that shows you how God viewed Israel's problems, their problems of compromise and the terrible consequences that arose from those compromises. And this graphic that I'm going to put up in just a few minutes is based on the key verses in chapters 2, 6 to 3, 6. Verses that summarize, the, all 22 verses, is summarize the big idea of these chapters. But I'm gonna walk through the verses first so you see it in the text, and then I'm gonna give you a graphic that makes it easy to remember. Follow me? Okay. Now, most Bible commentators on Judges talk about a pattern in the book, a downward spiral that enfolds in the book. Some people say that that downward spiral has four parts, some say five parts, some say six parts. I'm gonna say six parts, and, and my way is the right way. But they're, they're, they're all laying out the same basic pattern. So here's how I would describe the downward spiral, but first let me give you the introduction to the spiral. Two, chapter two, verses six through 10 summarize how the downward spiral began. 
And we're told that after Joshua died and all of Joshua's generation died, that is, that is everyone who remembered firsthand the great mighty acts of God in the Exodus, we're told, verse 10, after that generation, another, genero- another generation arose that did not know God or the work he had done for Israel. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't know Yahweh or the work. Now, of course, they knew who God was. They knew about God, and they knew about the mighty acts of God in the Exodus, but, but knowing about is not the same thing as knowing God personally and experientially. Knowing about is not the same as allowing what you know about God to shape your life and shape your values, right? So there's the introduction, and here's God's explanation of what took place in this new generation and for 300 years afterward, okay? Now, you don't have to scramble to get this down. It's all in your notes, and if you click in your sermon notes on the app or online, The PDF file, it'll give you everything, all the graphics that I'm going to give you. So you don't have to scramble to get it down. Just sit back and take it in. This is the summary of the 22 verses. It goes like this. First, sin. And here's the verse. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then, discipline. The Lord gave them over to plunderers or into the hands of a certain king or a certain people, enemy people. Distress, and they were in terrible distress, and the people cried out to the Lord. Then grace, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. Then deliverance, the Lord raised up a deliverer who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. And then peace, the land had rest for 40 years or 80 years or ever how many years. That's the downward spiral. And this is, it's a picture Uh, or these verses tell us about the spiritual disintegration of Israel during the days of the judges. And and this cycle repeats itself seven times in this book, seven times. Seven, a number for wholeness and, and perfection or completeness. These seven cycles told and they're not even chronological. They're just got the, the, the author has put them together in a way that he wants us to see the downward spiral of Israel and seven means the total complete Canaanization of Israel, the total complete spiritual degradation of all Israel. Even though the judges will look at, those were judges in certain places at certain times into certain people, but the, the spiral tells us that by the end of the, we get, when we get to the end of the book, the whole nation is spiritually bankrupt. Seven examples, not seven moral examples, but seven tragic examples of how, listen, when God's people forget him and the great works he has accomplished to save them, when God's people make cultural compromises and they begin worshiping Canaanite gods and intermarrying with the Canaanites, then God refuses to drive out the nations. In fact, Chapter 2, 22, chapter 3, verse 1 and 4, tell us that God left the Canaanites in the land to test Israel, to see, what's the test? To see if they would obey God or not. Would they go God's way or go their own way? And this is interesting. We're told in chapter 3, verse 1, that another reason for the test was because that generation had not experienced all the wars fought by Joshua and their fathers. 
And chapter three, verse two says, God wanted them to know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. Now that kind of uh, is disturbing to our modern ears, isn't it? What does it mean that God wanted to teach war to those who had not known it before? Well, it doesn't mean what you think it means. God is not saying that these people need to learn uh, better skills with bows and arrows and spears and swords. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying become more proficient in weaponry. He's not saying that. You could put it this way. God wanted to teach his people to be 100% dependent on him to fight their battles for them. That's the point. He wanted the people to be 100% dependent on him to do the fighting for them. I mean, how did Israel win the battle of Jericho? Not with superior military strength. God said, go march around Jericho seven times, blow your trumpets, and watch me bring the walls down. See, see, that's, that's teaching them war. Like, remember how I did it back then? Or how did Gideon, how did God tell Gideon to fight the Midianite army of well over 135,000 soldiers? God said, cut the size of your army from 32,000 soldiers down to 300, and then tell those 300 men to go up and hold up in the mountains outside the Midianite camp at night, tell them to take trumpets and tell each man to carry a clay pot with the torch inside, And when I tell you, blow your trumpets and break those pots and yell, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. And when they did, it caused such a commotion in the Midianite camp that the Midianites start fighting each other and killing each other and they run away for their lives. You see see it. Uh, That's warfare God's way. Depending on God to fight your battles. Isn't that good? I mean, I wish I could camp here, uh, but... uh, and there's some good application, but I'm going to leave that for you to discuss in your community groups because I, on the sermon notes, and uh, one of the discussion questions will kind of center on that, and you can have some fun talking about that. But okay, so God leaves the Canaanites in the land to test the hearts of the people and to teach them spiritual warfare, to teach them to depend on him. But again, this downward spiral is God's explanation of why the, the nation ends up bankrupt. So here's the graphic I promised you, okay? Here it is. There it is, okay. I thought we were gonna go full screen this time, but maybe not. All right, here it is. First, there's sin. The people do evil in the sight of the Lord and worship Baal and Ashtoreth. Discipline, the Lord gives them into the hands of their enemy. Distress, in their distress, the people cry out to the Lord. That's the tragedy. Then the hope, grace, God sees their suffering and takes pity on them. Deliverance, the Lord raises up a deliverer who saves them from their enemies. And then peace, the land had rest for 40 years, 80 years, whatever. But then you see the deliverer dies and the people do evil in the sight of the Lord again and the whole cycle starts over again. And, 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 and as the stories unfold, the pattern starts to disintegrate as the characters disintegrate. Let me show you this graphic. This is from uh, one of my professors, uh, Dan Block, who wrote a great commentary on Judges, and I was able to uh, uh, have him teach the book of uh, Judges to me and a bunch of guys in my demon class. Anyway, um, this, this right here illustrates the downward spiral in a little bit different way, because you see at the top of the circle is a man named Othniel, and he's the first judge, or, and when we talk about judge, they're not like Judge Judy types. This is like a deliverer, a savior. They did some judging, 
but it was mostly deliverer, savior, okay? So Othniel's the first judge, uh, and, and then the size of the circles represent the amount of textual space, or as we would say, the number of verses, that the biblical author devotes to a particular judge. And by the way, there are more judges than these. We're gonna see one at the end of uh, uh, chapter three. Uh, his name is Shamgar. He gets one verse. Okay, there's other judges, but these are the, the most significant. And, and here we see that Othniel, who we're gonna look at in just a minute, Othniel is the shortest story and he's the best of the judges. And after Othniel, it starts to go downhill. And then there's Deborah and Barak. Barak was a coward. Then there's Gideon or Jerubbaal, which I kind of prefer to call him Jerubbaal because he's half Canaanite. Baal, you see, and he's a coward and he suffers from spiritual schizophrenia. I mean, was he good or was he bad? I, I, don't, know, I don't know. And then there's Je Jephthah. He might as well have been in the mafia. And then there's Samson, who I said earlier was the absolute worst. And you see in this, this is not a book of moral examples to follow. It's not a book full of role models. This is not a book full of children's Bible stories. No, this is a book full of tragedies. And even when there are great triumphs, they don't last because after a few years, they're right back into the same thing all over again, another tragedy. Judges is a book of tragic examples, tragic examples of people who lose their way and make destructive choices that don't conform to God's will. Now listen to what, how Tim Mackey uh, talks about what I, what I just said. He has an online blog and, and it's called Judges and Messianic Hope. And in it he says, there is moral value in tragic literature. People in the ancient world seem to have been far more comfortable telling long stories about deeply flawed people who ruined their lives than we are. And that's how the stories end. This is not Hollywood-style storytelling. Westerners raised on Hollywood storylines have a short attention span for movies that don't end in some kind of redemptive resolution. And that's too bad. Whether it's a book like Judges or uh, the ancient Greek tragedies of Euripides, stories about people destroying themselves and those around them have immense value. Think about the epic Godfather trilogy of the 70s or the grisly Breaking Bad TV sensation. These, listen, these stories give us a close study of how a person slowly starts making choices of moral compromise that lead to greater and greater consequences. Almost no one starts in life to, out in life to uh, planning on self-ruin. So how do you get to the place where destructive life choices become a habit? It's not overnight. It's usually through a complex matrix of decisions and influences. We're often not aware that we're participating in our own demise. Tragic stories reflect how life actually works. Sometimes the bridges we, we burn can't be repaired. Sometimes the consequences of our actions can't be undone. These kinds of stories stand as important warnings. Listen, allowing us to experience catastrophe through literature rather than real life. That's the real value of the book of Judges. Consider it a giant stop sign that forces you to ask if you're like any of these characters and how you can make different choices. That is so good. So stinking good, man, I'm telling you. Now, it's interesting. Everybody's heard of Samson, 
the worst of all the judges. Nobody's ever heard of Othniel, the best of the judges. And what we see in the first, uh, what we see first and foremost in Othniel's story is how the six-part pattern that I just put on the screen, how it plays out in his life and in his story. That's the sole purpose of this story, to show us the pattern in real life. Okay, so Judges 3, 7 through 11. I'm gonna put this all on the screen. And the Lord of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. That's sin. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathiam of King Mesopotamia. Discipline. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathiam for eight years. Distress. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. That's grace. His name was Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathiam, and the land had, that's deliverance. And then the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So that's peace. You see, the story is lean and clean. The pattern laid out in chapter two is crystal, crystal clear. It is sin, discipline, distress, grace, deliverance, peace. That's the whole point of the first story, to show us how God's big picture explanation of what's going on in the days of Judges at the end of chapter two, is fleshed out perfectly in this Othniel story. In other words, in this story, the narrator wants us to see the pattern more than the person. You say, how do you know that? Well, I know it because there are no details in the story. There are no details about what's going on in Israel. There are no details about Othniel, and there's no details about the evil emperor, Cushan Rishathion from Aram Naharahim. That's, that's, the, that's the way it's said in Hebrew. Cushim Rishathayim from Aram Naharayim. I just like saying that. I mean, you learn all kinds of things here. And so, uh, but that's, he's from Mesopotamia and he's coming from the farthest away in like Iraq. So he's the most powerful uh, evil ruler that's coming against Israel and he's going up the best, going up against the best of the judges. And so the narrator is like, see the pattern I just told you about? Look at it. One, two, three, four, five, six. Here it is, clear as day in Othniel's story. You see, this book was not intended to be preached. It was intended to be read start to finish in one sitting. And the people would read Judges or hear it read, and they would see this pattern. And as the story moved forward, they would see that as the pattern dissolves, the people dissolve. The characters dissolve so that by the time you get to Samson, you can hardly make out the pattern at all. All you see is God's people and they're spiritually bankrupt and even God's deliverers are spiritually bankrupt. And though you see how no earthly savior will be ever be able to give us the hope we really need. But we need to stop right here and look more closely at what's at the heart of Israel's problem. What's at the heart of the downward spiral? And this is, ex is extremely important because this is where it intersects our lives today. If you look carefully, you'll see that at the heart of the downward spiral 
is the seductive pull of idols. God's people could not risk, uh, resist the allure of idolatry. And their problem is not so much a behavior problem, even though, yes, they're all breaking bad. But the real problem is a heart problem. It's an idol problem. Look at verse seven. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Idolatry. This is our problem. You're saying, I, I've, I've never worshiped an idol in my life. Oh, I wish it was that easy. I mean, uh, we're all idolaters. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And he said that because idolatry is a sin behind all sins. It's the problem behind all our problems. Now, we don't have the Baalim and the Ashtoreth today, and I'm not gonna do a deep dive and put pictures and stuff up on the, on the screen about these idol demon gods. Suffice it to say that they were male and female gods in the upper echelon of the whole host of Canaanite gods, gods who promised, listen, health and wealth and children and a, a harvest, good harvests, and victory in war to those who keep the gods on their good side. And so, yeah, we, we don't worship carvings or images of false gods made out of wood, metal, or stone, but idols aren't just images and carvings. An idol is anything we value more than God. An idol is anything that competes with God in our thought life and in our daily life. An idol... Listen, an idol is anything we think will bring us more satisfaction than God and what God has given us. An idol is anything we add to God as a requirement to be happy. Oh, yeah, we most definitely have idols today. Dick Keyes wrote a book called Chameleon Christianity, and in it he says an idol is something that create, uh, within creation that is inflated to function as God. All sorts of things are potential idols, depending, on, on, depending only on our attitudes and actions towards them. Idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, a career, an image, a an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. He says, whenever we value something more than God, we are committing the sin of idolatry. Whenever we value something more than God, we're committing the sin of idolatry. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote that you don't need an actual physical idol to be an idolater. If you look to anything for satisfaction and you have to have it, I'd be happy if that kind of thing, then you're an idolater. In Colossians 3, chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes, I'm re reading from the NLT right now, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. You see what Paul says, greed is idolatry. It's the sin behind all sins. Or put simply, greed is wanting more and more and more and more. It's a heart condition of discontentment where we're not happy with what we have. We're always looking for more, even if those things are good, 
Saint Augustine put it this way, the essence of sin is making good things ultimate things. The essence of sin, the essence of idolatry is making good things ultimate things. And the problem in the days of the judges, as in our day as well, is that no earthly deliverer could get rid of all the idols in people's hearts. Because the minute we take our eyes off God, the minute we begin to make cultural compromises, our hearts begin to manufacture idols for us to worship. And God's created us. We've got to worship something. It's either going to be the creator or the created. I mean, we got to give our hearts to something. And, and so what that means is that right now, you are giving or you're being tempted to give your heart to someone or something other than God. That's the great temptation. And it might be a good thing, a person, a career, a job. Right now, you and I are being tempted by the same kinds of idolatrous sins that the people in the days of the judges were powerless to resist. And Keyes says, this is so good, your greatest danger is not that you'll stop worshiping God and become an atheist. Your greatest danger is that you'll combine the worship of God with the worship of idols and you won't even know it. Oh yeah, you see, it's easier than you think to get caught in this downward spiral of idolatry. It's a downward spiral that on our own we're powerless to resist. And as we'll see in Judges, idolatry will leave us spiritually bankrupt and it can destroy us. One more time. There are good things in your life and in my life that can destroy us. Not because there's anything wrong with them in and of themselves, but when you make good things ultimate things, a relationship, a career, a technology, a fit, your fitness, your children, when those things become more important to, to you than God, you start the spiral. Judges teaches us that our idols can never satisfy us, not in any kind of lasting way, but rather they can and do ruin our lives. And this downward spiral in Judges shows us that truth in painful detail. That's the tragedy of it all. But Judges also shows us we need a judge, capital J. We need a deliverer, capital D. We need a savior who can save us from ourselves and who can give us new hearts that passionately pursue life with God. That's the hope. Now, what we see in the next story with this next judge, Ehud, He's definitely not the deliverer that we're longing for. But there's something about the way God works in the Ehud story that points us forward to the kind of deliverer we really need. Now, Ehud's name means where is the glory, which we're meant to read, where is God's glory, which is the question in the days of the judges. Where is God's glory? That's the question. But man, I'm telling you, this story is one wild, weird story. You will never find this in a children's book. It is crazy, bizarre, so buckle your seatbelts. It is going to be a bumpy ride. All right, so after 40 years of peace, the spiral starts again. All right, this time I'm just gonna read you the story and make some, a few comments along the way. But you can follow along if you want to, chapter three, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, that's sin, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab over to the, uh, Israel, over, to, gave, con, I, I, <laughs> all right, 
And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil discipline. Eglon enlisted the Ammonite. You know what? I know that's going to end up on a Charlie Boyd out of context. Okay. Uh, where, what, wh where am I? Verse 13. Okay. Uh, Eglon, verse 13. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Malachites as allies, and then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of the city of Palms, which that's the uh, really uh, nice, attractive name for Jericho. And Jericho is a city, remember, where God gave Joshua a great victory without the army, armies of Israel even raising a weapon. Verse 14, and the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. That's distress. There it is, sin. The Israelites do what's evil in God's eyes. And then Yahweh raises up an oppressor, Eglon and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites. That's discipline followed by 18 years of distress. You see the pattern again. Verse 15, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a deliverer to save them. That's grace. And his name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. That's the beginning now of deliverance. I love this story. I can't believe I get to preach this story. Verse 15 again, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a deliverer to save them. His name was Ehud, the son of Gera, a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you remember in the Othniel story, there were no details. In Ehud's story, there are lots of details. And in the Hebrew Bible, whenever you see the narrator adding the details, you know that those details somehow figure into the plot line. They are very significant. So what's this about a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin? Well, Benjamin means son of my right hand. So here's a left-handed man from a right-handed tribe. He's a misfit. He, 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 Ehud would be someone who would never be voted most likely to become a savior, all right? Now, you have to ask, but, you know, what's, what's, what, what is this whole thing? Why is this detail in there? I mean, he's going to be a valuable pitcher on a pitching staff someday? Like, what's the deal with this left-handed business? Verse 15, the Israelites sent Ehud to deliver tribute, most likely food and wine, not coins, food and wine, to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about 18 inches long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. Why, what is, what's the deal with these details? Okay, so now, we're, but we're getting a hint as to why a left-handed detail is important, think. If you are right-handed, what side do you wear your, your sword on? Your dagger, yeah, you wear it on your left side. If you're left-handed, where do you wear your sword? On your right side. So if Eglon's guards, well, he's a misfit, don't see many left-handed people. Uh, so, if, so if Eglon's guards are going to frisk him, check him out for weapons, they're just gonna, if he comes walking in like this, and his left hip is exposed, they're going to go, oh, he's fine. Let him in. Let him in. I mean, he's a left-handed guy. Like, he's, you, know, you don't have to worry about him. So anyway, so, so if you're right-handed, carry it on this side. If you're left-handed, you carry it on this side, and he's got his dagger hidden under his cloak. This is how he is able to get his double-edged dagger into the presence of the king 
Verse 17. So Ehud brought the tribute to Eglon, who was very fat. Now, the Hebrew meaning for very fat is very fat. He was morbidly obese. Another detail. And Eglon means calf. So Eglon is the fatted calf ready for slaughter. Think Star Wars and think Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> King Eglon is sitting in Palm Springs in his summer palace, and Ehud is bringing him food, and he's like, yeah, bring it on, more food, more food. That's what I want, good wine. Thank you. This is a great story. It's a great story. Verse 18. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped him carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. Now, hmm, stone idols. Why, why that detail in the story? What's that all about? Well, Gilgal, Joshua 4, years earlier, Gilgal is where Joshua put the 12 stones of remembrance, 12 stones taken from the middle of the dry riverbed of the Jordan after the, after the Lord had parted the Jordan and allowed the Israelites to go across on dry land, and so they stacked 12 stones in Gilgal as stones of remembrance to help future generations of Israelites remember how Yahweh parted the Jordan and they walked across on dry land, but they forgot God and his mighty works. So at Gilgal, the stones of remembrance are gone, and they've been replaced with stone idols. Where's the glory gone? Israel has forgotten Yahweh, so Ehud stops there, and then he turns around, and he goes back to Jericho. Verse 19, so he came to Eglon, and he said, I got a secret message for you, and that intrigues uh, Eglon, and, and the king commands his servants, be quiet, be quiet. This guy's got a, he's got a secret message for me. In fact, y'all get out of here. Get out of here. So, so it's just Eglon and Ehud. That's the stupidest thing you could do, right? I mean, that, that is that, that's just kind of stupid. Verse 20, Ehud walks over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in the cool upstairs room in the summer palace in Palm Springs, and Ehud now says, oh, actually, I've got a message from God. And Ahab said, let's have it, let's have it. So, so, so first he says, I got a secret message. And then he says, I got a message from God. And as King Eglon rose from his seat, Ahud reached to his, his left hand, pulled out his dagger strapped to his right thigh, see the details, and plunged it into the king's belly. And the dagger went in so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger, but the dung came out. <laughs> you heard correctly. The dung came out. Pastor Charlie, this is church. I can't believe you're saying that in church. Look, I'm just reading the Bible. Like, uh, this is God's inspired word, every word of it. And the Hebrew word is parshadona. The, uh, the, the Bible says the parshadona came out. This is a great church. Uh, you're learning new words all the time here. So all the middle school students are going to be using this word all week long. Parshadona. Where are you going? Parshadona. All right. Listen, this is an important detail. Verse 23. So Ehud closed and locked the doors of the upper room and he made his getaway. 
And Ehud was gone. After Ehud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors of the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the toilet. Why would they think that? Woo! Ah, Parsedona. Shoo, wee. I wish the preacher wouldn't use poop jokes. I'm not. I'm just, I'm just telling you what the scripture says. Verse 25, so they waited, and when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key, and when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. You see it. While they waited, Ehud got away. The stink, the idea that the king must be on his stone throne gave Ehud time to get away. Here it is, verse 26. It says it. While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped. Passing the stone idols on his way to Sirah. Where's the glory now? Not with Eglon's idol gods. Verse 27, when he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms, then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing, and they attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest, most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped, so Moab was conquered by Israel that day, deliverance, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. So you see how all these details are important to the story. Ahud was a left-handed man from a right-handed tribe. He was a misfit. That meant he could easily sneak a weapon into the throne room of the king. Eglon was a very fat man, so fat that when Ahud ran him through the dagger, went in so far into the fat that the fat swallowed up the sword and dung came out. And while the guards, when they, when they smelled the parshadona, they waited for a long time outside the door Had they come in sooner, they would have caught Ehud and killed him. There would have been no deliverer for Israel, but they delayed going in, and that gave Ehud time to get away and rally the troops and attack and defeat the Moabites, and so there was peace in the land for 80 years. (laughs) That's the way God delivered his people. (laughs) I can't believe I get to preach the story. By the way, I am not responding to emails. You can just take your complaints up with the author of the story. And uh, I can hear some of the stories now, like you bump into somebody that wants in that church today, and they go, oh, how, what, what was the sermon about today? You don't want to know. Now, here's the big idea. I want you to think about this, because the big idea will blow your mind. Here's the hope. God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to accomplish his saving work. God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to accomplish his saving work. That's what we learned about God in the Ehud story. God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to accomplish his saving work. And the story of Ehud, it is, it is wild and weird and bizarre. Really, you can't get much more bizarro than this. So one more time, Ehud is not a moral example for us to emulate. Don't try to sanitize him as some kind of saint. He is most definitely not a saint. The main message of the Bible is not that God only blesses and saves and uses those who are 
who live morally praiseworthy lives. That's not the message of this story. It's not the message of the Bible. What is the message of the Bible? I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, the message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives his grace to people who don't ask for it, who don't deserve it, and who don't even fully appreciate it after they get it. (laughs) The message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives his grace to people who don't ask for it, who don't deserve it, and who don't even fully appreciate it. And here in the Ehud story, we see that God uses a complete misfit, a man you would think is completely unqualified, a left-handed man from a right-handed tribe. And he uses a morally questionable act of deception to save the, the people that God loves. And I just want to tell you, if you're listening today and you feel like a, a total mess up, if you feel completely unqualified, You feel that God, because of the things that you've done in your life, you don't feel like that God could ever use you for good? Listen, you're in good company. God uses mess-ups. He works through the most unlikely people. He can even use you. And, And when he does, it's not because of how great you are. It's because of how great God is. Whenever God uses us, it's always him working through us. It's always because of his grace. In fact, he has a really hard time working through people who think they got their lives all put together. Hear me. What I'm saying here doesn't justify all of Ehud's actions. It's not a justification for maybe how you messed up. But somehow, sometimes, God weaves his acts of deliverance into human choices, even when those choices are not the best choices. That's grace. Not a justification for the sin, it's just that no sin can keep God from using a person who turns to him and cries out to him. God can use Ehud's and he can use you. Not because we have it all together, It's because of his grace. So yeah, God uses unexpected people in unexpected ways to accomplish his saving work. And nowhere do we see this more than in our ultimate deliverer and savior whom God has sent to give us lasting hope for the future. The downward spiral continues all through the book of Judges and all through the Old Testament. God had every reason to give up on Israel, and yet he never did. He had no reason to rescue them again and again and again and again. But in his mercy and grace, he delivered them from their enemies time and again. But it was, it was clear that no earthly deliverer No king would ever be able to bring lasting change. So God sent his son in a totally unexpected way. Born in a cattle stall, raised in a poor family, in a little backwater town nobody ever heard of. And Isaiah said there was nothing about the way he looked that would draw us to him. Nothing special about the way Jesus looked. He just looked, he was just a misfit. And Jesus was viewed by the religious establishment of his day as a complete 
misfit. He was considered to be a completely unqualified rabbi and even more so as a, as a Messiah. Voted most likely to never be Messiah. His own people rejected him and nailed him to a cross in total humiliation. I mean, how could God's Messiah die a shameful death on a Roman's cross? Didn't make sense. Didn't fit with their religious expectations. It offended their Jewish sensibilities. But Jesus is the glorious savior that God sent to deliver us and to rescue us, not from our circumstances like those uh, earthly deliverers in the days of judges, but Jesus came to save us from our sin and he died to save us from the idol factories of our heart that do nothing for us except ruin us and destroy us. And he rose from the dead to show us he could make good on his promise that whoever believes in him will not come under God's judgment, but they pass from death into life. And, 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 and those who believe in him receive God's gift of eternal life. Life that starts now in, per, in close personal relationship with God and goes on forever. Oh, yeah. Jesus is our unexpected Savior who came to us in an unexpected way. He is the ultimate deliverer, the only one who can rescue us from our sin and from ourselves and make us right with God. And I plead with you today, put your faith in him. Trust in him today if you've never done that. And for those of us like myself the encouragement is put your whole heart into trusting Jesus. Don't let the, the world around us conform you and cause you to make cultural compromises that will take you on a trajectory far, far away from God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind through faith real, true faith in Jesus. He might not be the Savior you expect, but he most definitely is the Savior you need. Father God, thank you for this crazy passage of Scripture. So much in this passage, it does intersect our lives today. It comes right down to our address, to our homes and our workplaces. And it is a message we desperately need to hear. And Holy Spirit, it is a message that we desperately need you to give us the power and the grace to put into action in our own lives. Nothing we think, nothing in this world that we think will save us, can save us. Nothing in this world that we think can give us ultimate satisfaction can truly satisfy. Holy Spirit, convince us deep down at the core of our hearts, convince us that Jesus and Jesus alone is not only our hope for life with you in the future, but he's our hope right now that we might be saved from the corruption that's in the world through lust. Save us now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen.